I appreciate it. Uh, so I'm mostly excited about getting to preach in jeans because I don't get to do this where I come from. Um, so, yeah, I know you should be sad for me. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, so thank you this morning for having me and thank you for honestly just being the church that you are and a great reminder to me as I serve with the First Baptist Church of Austin uh, of what it looks like to um, to have a sister congregation that is deeply working and trying to be the presence of Christ in the world. Um, so, a little bit about me. It was about uh, three years ago that I became the mission pastor at my church. And to be frank, uh, had you asked me 10 or so years ago uh, whether or not this was a job that I would want, I would have told you no. Uh, I didn't really take the missions classes in college uh, that everyone else seemed to be so crazy about. Uh, I wasn't even one of those kids um, that spent their summers abroad uh, doing mission work in Latin America or sub-Saharan Africa. In fact, I had a roommate for about a week who spent his summers doing mission work in India at an AIDS, uh, a hospital for people with AIDS, and I couldn't be friends with the guy because uh, he was too depressing. Um, Throughout seminary, I avoided close friendships and people studying social work because it was all too hard. I, I never wanted to become one of those bleeding heart progressive types that somehow turns any and every conversation I'm in towards that really horrible and unjust thing that they're super duper up in arms about and really, really, really wanting you to get super up in arms about it too. I never wanted to be that person. I never wanted to be that guy because that guy is really annoying and that guy has his phone calls screened. And a big part of this is how much I love Austin. The reason I am who I am now and the reason why I do the things that I do now is because I really just love this place that we call home. I love living in and around Austin. I love Central Texas and the hills and I know many of you here probably know what I'm talking about. It's the sort of sick addiction that we have to this place. For all the traffic and the big city nonsense, we just want to be here or near here. And so when my work at First Austin shifted and I began to uh, have more time to pay attention to the needs of our neighborhood right there at 901 Trinity, and the more time I spent listening and, and learning about how the church was involved in perpetuating and maintaining all of this, what well, sort of lit a fire under me. It sort of awakened this already rather cranky curmudgeon that existed deep in my soul. And it all started doing the thing to me that I knew it would do way back when. Way back when, when I was letting other people worry about these sorts of things. It started messing with how I read scripture, how I attempted to wrap my very small brain around God, and it started messing with how I understood myself in relation to all of it. So with that, let us pause again and open our hearts to whatever it is that God might have for us this morning. Now, O oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the words of my heart and the meditation of all of our hearts here in this sacred place amongst all of these sacred people be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So hear these words from the gospel according to Luke. 
On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Friends, hear the voice of God through these words. So I was sitting at a traffic light the other day thinking about the relationship that I have with social media. And it suddenly dawned on me, which it might have already dawned on some of you already, but yeah, it sort of suddenly dawned on me just how absolutely ridiculous it is that I, a 36-year-old man with a job, a mortgage, a wife, three dogs, a church to care for, and hobbies befitting an adult, and some that don't, and other far more important things to be spending my time on would find himself sitting at a traffic light and thinking about the relationship that I have with social media. And then I remember that the whole reason I was even sitting at a traffic light thinking about my relationship with social media is because a few months ago, your pastors called me up and asked me to come here and preach a sermon to all of you about our relationship with social media, and that I had said yes to the invitation. But let's be honest, as ridiculous as I or we may think it actually seems, this wasn't actually the first time that I had done some thinking about my relationship with social media. And I don't really know that many do, but we can be honest with each other here today. How many of you, we're going to do a little hand-raising thing, how many of you have ever considered, just even considered it, considered your relationship with social media? just thought about it. Okay, keep them up there. Now keep your hand raised and keep them high. Let's be proud. Keep your hand raised if you would say that at least, at least, just kind of, sort of, maybe, you have a negative feeling about the relationship you have with social media. Just kind of, just a little bit. Okay, now keep your hands raised if you would say you would classify yourself as someone if you're super honest today. And remember, We're all being honest today. Keep your hand raised if you're solidly worried about your relationship with social media. That's fine. Okay. Now we're about to separate the wheat from the chaff. 
We're about to see how things really are in this place. How many of you have ever taken a break from social media? Like for Lent, and you like stepped away till Easter, or for a certain month, and you took a break, and you did that like that, that post on social media where you like announced to the world that you were taking a break as though people would come back at the time that you're taking a break just to check and see if you're still taking a break. How many of you have ever done that? Notice that my hand is still raised as well. You can put them down now. So yes, while even having to talk about our relationships with social media seems a bit ridiculous, it's actually kind of needed. And it's actually sad to kind of admit that out loud. And even if it's not needed for you personally, it's at least needed for me. And then for the rest of us who are brave enough to keep our hands raised. So my friend Carrie, she's our youth and formation pastor at First Dawson. She texted me the other day, and she said, For the last five minutes, Josh and I thought Ella was a child genius. Ella is their two, about-to-be-three-year-old daughter, and Josh, that's her husband. You know, like a child genius, like one of those kids that's doing the beautiful mind thing with all the numbers floating in the air, but it's really inside their brains, and it's all, and it all kind of magically makes sense to them, like that kind of a child genius, or like a little kid in a high chair being scooted up to a piano, and all of a sudden it's playing like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, like backwards, like that kind of a child genius. Like she thought her child was a child genius. And so what she did is she told me that her husband and her were working on dinner in the kitchen and watching on as their two-year-old daughter played in the living room. And when all of a sudden they both looked up from what they were doing and they found Ella sitting there on her little Winnie the Pooh recliner thing. And she was perfectly reading aloud in clear, beautiful English the book Goodnight Moon. And both of their jaws just kind of like sort of dropped to the floor for a second, standing there in stunned silence while their brains both cleared out some mental space for the real potentiality that they might have actually been the creators and are now going to be the long-term caretakers of a child who could potentially cure cancer or something, or maybe become the first female president. And so they just kind of stood there for a second, taking in the weight of this responsibility but I'm not, and I'm not sure what really happened next, but from Carrie's initial text, it sounds like it took them around five minutes to finally notice that the book Ella was clearly and perfectly reading from was actually upside down in her little hands, and that Goodnight Moon was, in fact, the book that they'd been reading to her every single night for the past two months. You see, there's this idea that I've got this idea that's been sort of tumbling around in my brain this past week while I've been thinking about my relationship to social media and then this story that I've thrown in from the Gospel of Luke. And it's this. It's this idea that at the end of the day, you and I are the products of our own formation. You and I are the products of our own formation. So when I look at the, the Good Samaritan, a story that is so ubiquitous in our society that it's honestly nearly impossible to squeeze anything more out of it, to find some additional interpretation or a different take on what the passage can mean for us in this particular time and place we find ourselves in, I can't help but initially think that there's really not much else there to see. I mean, it's even in the title, 
the Samaritan is good. Even though in the entire passage you can look at it, the word good is actually not even used. Somewhere along the way, our Bible publishers just decided to put it there on the top for us so we could easily know what we're getting ourselves into. The good Samaritan. The Samaritan is good, and these other two guys, well, they're bad. Don't do what they do. In any good commentary, if you're a preacher type like myself, when you open that good commentary, you'll find that they're going to make sure to note that the Samaritan is the unexpected hero, hero of the story. Nobody actually wanted to be a Samaritan. And the priest and the Levite who pass by, well, for the most part, we just kind of see them as, as being merely restricted by their own self-piety, unable to see who Jesus sees and help who God wants them to help. And there's something about that message that I've needed to hear every time that I've heard it, this reminder. But ever since I started paying attention a bit more to the hard things happening in our church, around the neighborhood that my church exists, like the reality of homelessness in Austin, and, and paying better attention to the perpetual and traditionalized under-resourcing of specific populations in our community, Something just started to happen to how I understood the way things are and how we all got here. I began seeing that the world we live in is built on the same kinds of roads like the one that used to run from Jerusalem to Jericho. Roads and societal structures that are by design made to be safely traversed by some and not safely traversed by others. Roads meant to keep clear separation between the haves and the have-nots. Roads meant to keep you on your side and to keep me on my side, roads paved in exploitation and greed. Roads that, if we're really honest, only continue to exist in our world because so many, the many for whom the road is safe, are all too willing to respond just like the Levite and the priest. Passing by on the other side, averting their eyes, living lies, lives of quiet placation. And the question that I feel like needs to be asked is, how did the Levite and the priest turn out like this? How did they become the kinds of men who, upon seeing a person battered and bloodied in the ditch, choose to cross on the other side, to take a wider berth, what happened to them? How did they get here? That in the face of difficult things, in the face of hard things, in the face of injustices that continue to be presenting to us in this world, that they would choose to cross on the other side and choose to quicken their pace. How'd they get here? Were they scared? Well, then who taught them that they needed to be afraid? Were they worried about the extra burden? Well, then who made them believe that there's not enough to go around? Were they worried about what their religious cronies might think? Well, then who instilled in them such a small view of God? Because while I absolutely agree with the reputation preceding the Levite and the priest, and I will continue for the foreseeable future 
slandering both of their names, I also at the same time can accept that they are merely products of their own formation and that their responses in this particular moment on this particular road that runs from Jerusalem to Jericho, this road that they've been safely walking along their entire lives is exactly the response that they were formed to make. Which also means, friends, that not only is the Good Samaritan an actual Good Samaritan that we should remember for his generosity and compassion, but that we should also understand him as a product of his own formation and that his response in this particular moment, on this particular road that runs from Jerusalem to Jericho, the same road that he himself has also been safely walking for his entire life, that his response is in fact the response that he was formed to make. And for me, it's right here where I think we ought to talk a bit about our relationship with social media. Because when it comes to the great endeavor of becoming ourselves, we aren't just considering something that exists isolated in the spiritual realm or hidden away in the deep chambers of our soul where it's just me and Jesus. Because becoming ourselves, while it feels individual and it feels like it's just me and God doing this work, becoming ourselves, it must, it has to have serious implications for the world that we live in and how we as followers of Jesus navigate and respond to a world that is scarred with violence with greed, with injustice, with exploitation, and narcissism run rampant. I want to ask you all a question that I've been, that I've been kind of going around asking a lot of different places. Uh, ever since I got into the work of um, advocating on behalf of the marginalized and under-resourced in our community, I have become an enemy to the status quo. And so I go and speak at each HOA meetings um, and tell some hard truths to those people and ask some hard questions. So I'm going to ask you one of the questions that I ask in HOA meetings all the time. And some of you may know the answer to this question. So if you do know the answer to the question, hold off. Okay, and I'm talking about you, Brittany. For every 10,000 people in the U.S., for every 10,000 people in the U.S., how many do you think are currently experiencing Homelessness. Out of 10,000, how many do you think experience homelessness, Edna? How many? 5,000. How many? 800. Out of 10,000, how many do you think are experiencing homelessness? 17. 17 people per 10,000 are experiencing. Raise your hand if that's surprising to you. It's okay to be surprised. I want you to know that in this moment, the surprise you're feeling has been formed in you. This has been formed in you, your surprise. Because I'll stand up in front of a crowd at an HOE meeting and I'll throw out that stat and I'm met with absolute disbelief. Even when I give you the website, inhomelessness.org, a government-run website, government-run research that tells us that in the U.S., for every 10,000 persons, 
17 are currently experiencing homelessness. And now, I also know what's kind of, because I've been in this situation, I also know what's kind of going through your head. Well, it's got to be way worse in Austin. In Austin, it's 20. 20. A place that has been in the media, on our social media platforms, all the way, all over Facebook posts and all over CNN and YouTube videos and Instagram accounts and people are tweeting about it on the internet. Our city is being used as an example of what happens when homelessness runs amok. But the question I have is, what about 10,000 to 20 sounds like something that's run amok? But the reality of it is, is that you and I have been formed into believing that it's much worse than it is. My theory is that we've been formed to feel this way about homelessness, that we've been so inundated with messages of scarcity and fear that as a collective, we've lost our ability to, to really see things as they are. Not just the tragedy of it all, but the real possibility that we might be able to actually do something about all of this. If we could just come to terms with that part of ourselves that thinks getting fired up about a tweet or winning an argument with someone you disagree with on Facebook is the same as actually doing something in the real world. That in many ways, we ourselves fall into the same pitfalls as the Levite and the priest, allowing the internal messaging of our formation to overrule what's really happening before our eyes inoculating us to the tra tragedies all around us and convincing us in the most sneaky and pernicious way that there's just nothing that can be done about any of this. And so the question I have is, how did we get here? How did we arrive at this place? So I googled the phrase, crazy social media facts. So here they are. Some of this stuff's going to blow your mind. The average internet user has 7.6 social media accounts. At this point in my life's journey, I am an exclusive Pinterest and Instagram person, so I have no er earthly idea how anybody handles all of that. 81% of, and this, I'm going to say this, dot, I don't mean this judgy, so don't receive it in that way. 81% of parents report their kids start using Facebook between the ages of 8 and 13. 81% of parents report their kids start using Facebook between 8 and 13 years of age. Every second, sorry. <laughs> Every second, okay? Every second, as in, Every second, more than 500 hours of video is added to YouTube. Okay, so this next one has nothing to do with social media, but I just thought it blew my mind. I had to tell people. More people own a cell phone in the world than people own toothbrushes. There are 6.8 billion people on the planet. 5.1 billion of them own a cell phone, but only 4.2 billion of them own a toothbrush. Like I said, that has nothing to do with social media. I mean, it might, but I just thought it was interesting. 
<clears throat> there's a study done at Princeton that found that the average Facebook user has 155 friends on the platform, but would only trust four of them in a time of crisis. And then two final zingers. 25% of internet users check their social media at least five times a day. And each of those social media sessions lasts between 20 and 30 minutes. So that's nearly two hours of a person's life being taken each day by something that actually doesn't exist in the world. But the thing is, I'm not really surprised by any of that. Well, maybe the tooth toothbrush thing. Not. But it all shows me that social media and our society's collective relationship to it, the fact that so many of us are spending so much of our time on there has something to do with how we're all being formed, how we're being shaped into the kind of people who either respond like the Good Samaritan or don't. Social media has brought this whole new wrinkle to our world and how we learn things, how we keep up with current events, how we stay in touch with the people we love, and, and even how we further silo ourselves off into echo chambers of safety and sameness and lose touch with our ability to solve societal ills through finding common ground. Because I believe that the spirituality of our time requires that each of us bravely embark on a journey of being and becoming that considers all the various avenues of our formation, and social media is one of those places. This kind of spirituality that takes a beat to think about what we're digesting into our souls on a regular basis and asking the very hard question about whether or not the way we engage with something like Social media is emboldening us to proclaim the coming of a yet-to-be-known but surely holier and surely more just vision of the world than the one we currently have. We also have to ask ourselves the question whether or not our connection with social media is causing us to shrink back, to shrink back in fear and give in to every single lie that the powers and principalities of our world would have us to continue believing. To follow Jesus means that we too must reach beyond, that we each must do something to redeem our battered, beaten world from the greed that's smothering it. And I wonder if any of us, myself included, have the gumption to turn a critical eye to the way that we engage with our world via social media. Do we really want to take the gut check to think about this thing that whether we like it or not occupies a lot of our time occupies a lot of our mental space in some ways it's this necessary thing that that we've kind of created for ourselves but at the same time we have a responsibility to tend to that relationship when I was a little kid I used to love going to uh, the movies with my my brother and my dad and I'm from East Texas, and so it took us a while to get, like, the fancy theaters. And so up until I was, like, straight 
into high school, you know, in college, like we still had like the old school theater, like no IMAX or no whatever's that you guys from the big city had. But one of my favorite things that would always happen, like and it would kind of give me chills and like I still remember the experience, is you would sit down in the theater and you'd have all the, the previews kind of going. And then there's this moment that happened between the previews and the feature film. And maybe you don't know what I'm talking about at all, but what happens is this, is you're sitting there watching the screen and it just suddenly starts to move. Because it's, what it's doing is it's going from this little medium form ratio and it's actually expanding out to the 16 by nine cinema perspective. And I always loved that moment. I love that kind of expansive moment of watching those curtains move back and it's kind of like, ah, the movie is starting. And so I always loved that image, and I always wondered, why did I love that image so much? Like, what about the expansion of that felt so right, even as a child? And I've come to learn that at the ripe age of 36 now, I've learned what it is that I love so much about that, that there's something incredibly divine about the experience of expansion. That the gospel is always oriented towards an expansion. And so any time, and this is the only advice I really honestly have to give you about social media, like I thought about like having some like statement that we could all like tattoo on our foreheads and like give us a primer on how to go forward with social media, but I don't have one. All it is to say is this, that when it, in regards to how you feel about social media and how it is affecting who you are becoming, I want you to listen to that piece in yourself that feels like expansion or feels like shrinking. So in that moment when that moron from Michigan says something about whoever that you happen to really like and you feel like it's your like moral duty to respond to them, is that response triggered by an expansion or is it triggered by a shrinking, a fear? Because I think about these two persons as they walk on the road and I wonder about what, what's, what are they hearing in their brains as they're approaching this man who's been beaten and battered. Because I, what I don't think was happening was that the Levite and priests were like, ha, they got what's theirs, deuces. I don't think that's what happened. Because that would just be unfair, right? It'd be just like leaning into bias and, and just blind um, opinions. But what I think might have happened was something like this, something that you and I probably are rather familiar with. They saw the person on the side of the road and they thought, oh gosh, oh man, if I help this person, it could just be, like that could just be a can of worms. I don't really want to do that. And I've got, I've got stuff to do. Like I, It's only 10 o'clock, but I've got a meeting at three. And so I need to make sure that I've, that I've got the time for this. And I want you to think that the reality of that, what does that sound like? Does it sound like expansion or does it sound like shrinking? Because I think the difference between the responses on that road that day were a whole lot like expansion and shrinking. That the Levite and the priest walked by that day and they saw the person on the ditch that had been beaten and their immediate response upon seeing that was a response that was formed into them by the community that they were a product of. And that response was one of shrinking, not one of expansion. Because the Good Samaritan saw the person on the side of the road and thought, I've got enough. I've got enough to stop and help. There's enough time in the world. There's enough resources in the world. There's enough love in the world. 
And so I think oftentimes we have to, to take into account the reality of the things that we're pouring into ourselves on a daily basis and whether or not they're contributing to the expansion or the shrinking of our souls. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you because beyond all fathomable reason, you choose us and you love us despite all the times that we have tried to go different ways. You keep believing on us and you keep trusting in us. And so despite my serious misgivings about your judgment, God, we thank you. Amen.